Hi, I'm Jim Paplava. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique, personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make financial sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888-486-3939 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you plan your future. Welcome, everyone. Today's topic is estate planning. Whether you're talking about a will, trust, durable powers of attorney, why are these documents essential and important? Joining us on the program is Adam Sherry from the firm Spectre and Sherry. Adam, let's talk about some of the basic estate documents. Everybody knows you should at least have a will. And let's talk about why a will is important. Then I want to move on to things like trust, conservatorships, property titling, etc. But let's begin with the will, because whether you're newly wed, even if you don't have any assets, maybe you have kids, or, you know, maybe you're in retirement. Why is a will important? Jim, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm always glad to get a chance to talk. So I tell my clients sometimes that if you don't have a will or a trust or something like that, you still have an estate plan. But the problem is it's been provided to you by the default laws of the state that you live in. So if you don't have a document like a will that directs where you want your property to go, Ultimately, it'll be distributed according to the default laws that govern transfers of assets post-death. So a will is a proactive step that you can take where you remain in control of your assets and you get to designate where they go, in what proportions. And so it's, it's really important because uh, it's not like if you just don't take any steps, it's all going to work out. Um, you need to be part of that process by directing where your assets will go. Now, I want to talk about something that may interfere with a will, and that's property titling. So let's say I own a home and it's in joint tenancy with my wife. But let's say it's a second marriage and that the house is to go to my children. So in my will, I say, if something happens to me, the house is to go to my children but this is a second marriage, and when we bought the house, we put it in joint tenancy. Let's talk about the issues that arise because of that. I like that you bring this up. So a will is going to direct where property goes that's subject to the power that a will can exert over certain property. However, like you mentioned, uh, a title to a home that might be held in joint tenancy or a bank account that has a beneficiary designation on it, those tweaks or directions that are associated with a specific asset will result in what's called a non-probate transfer. And a non-probate transfer is in effect an instruction that you gave that's specific to that particular asset. And so you mentioned a title to a home held in joint tenancy. So joint tenancy comes with it, a right of survivorship. And your, as your hypothetical points out, you know, that's going to result in it passing to the surviving spouse to the exclusion of children from a prior marriage. And so your instructions in a will will apply to 
And really, you can only use those to effectuate a transfer of assets that are not subject to some sort of other instruction. So beneficiary designations on bank accounts, beneficiary designations on retirement accounts, holding title with a a right of survivorship like a joint tenancy, those things will result in a non-probate transfer, which effectively occurs in a level above a will. So your instructions in a will will not necessarily apply to those assets. So you know, that's a really good point as far as taking a more holistic view and thinking about a lot of the different factors beyond just a will. I want to bring up another issue relating to this as it applies to property titling. We live in California and there are things like community property states. And when one spouse passes away, in a community property state, the entire assets get stepped up to market value. So let's say you bought a house in California at a quarter million dollars. Today, it's worth a million and a half dollars. Those capital gains are forgiven at death. But talk about the problems of step up when it's held in joint tenancy. Right. So the the community property aspect is really important. As you point out, it's a way of getting a full step up in basis, which disregards those capital gains tax. Now, the community property designation is important because you get this tax benefit, not simply as a result of being married. You get it as a result of being married and the property being clearly community property. So we talk about community versus what? What's what's the other way that a property might be characterized? And it would be separate property. And if you, this example that you brought up with a, a blended family, second marriage, property that you bring into a relationship that you held previously would be separate property. And on the death, you, you'd only get a step up as to, you know, with a husband-wife combination, you'd only get it as to, you know, a one half interest in it, usually when it's separate property. And so a simple act of joint tenancy is worth taking a look at because by adding clarity, thinking about this, you know, more broadly and saying, this is community property with a right of survivorship. It does the same sort of thing that a joint tenancy transfer on death would do as far as avoiding the need for a will or sidestepping some sort of a restriction there, but clearly designating it as community property with a right of survivorship just makes such a big difference, like you're pointing out, when it comes to limiting, reducing capital gains tax. It's big. I want to talk about something else that comes in, and this probably applies to families starting out. Uh, So let's say they Maybe they own a home. They haven't accumulated a lot of assets yet because they're a young couple. But let's say, you know, mom and dad have life insurance. So let's say dad has between personal life insurance and life insurance at work, a million dollar policy. Adam, talk about something called a testamentary trust where maybe the assets aren't there now, but at death because of insurance, all of a sudden a large amount of money comes into play and you want to be able to protect the surviving spouse and the children. Great question. So you just mentioned that we're in both in California. And so testamentary trusts are something that are available in California. 
they're you know within the range of options that you can avail yourself of. But one of the things for your other listeners that might be interesting is that testamentary trusts are extremely popular. And in some states, the default approach in, in some states on, on the East Coast. And so a will can be used to establish a trust after death. So there's, there's two types of trusts that we commonly think of. And so one is an inter vivos trust. And that's a trust that you can establish during your lifetime. Uh, and it's, it's up and running. It's something that you can transfer assets into. And you're able to list the ways in which you want to provide for your family, avoid problems, et cetera. A testamentary trust is a trust that has the instructions in something like a will. And it doesn't actually get created until post-death, so after the person passes away. And so the testament part of a testamentary trust references a document that lists kind of your, your final wishes. And so, you know, positive thing, the pros is that just like you point out, it's a great way to provide some protection, guardrails, instructions um, for your family after you pass away. One of the downsides can be that it takes some extra effort to establish post-death. Now, the example with a life insurance policy plus a testamentary trust is a good one because, again, that's a non-probate transfer plus these instructions contained in a will. So it reduces the harm associated with probate. But if we're relying on a testamentary trust and there's other types of assets, we still may find ourselves in a probate situation before we can establish that testamentary trust. We've been talking about the importance of a will and how property tithing can take precedent over will or a trust. Let's talk about some of the supplemental documents, uh, you know, durable powers of attorney, durable medical powers. I remember during COVID, uh, our healthcare provider always wanted to see our durable medical powers. What do these documents do and what do they allow, let's say, the spouse or a successor trustee to do. Yeah, this is so valuable for, for your listeners. So as an estate planning attorney, I, I prepare those documents as part of, a, of an estate plan, right? So an estate plan, we're working on a whole set of documents so that we can address these different things. But if I get a call from a prospective client and for one reason, he or she doesn't want to move forward, I say, fine, no problem. But you know, I don't do sales, but please, get a advanced healthcare directive and a durable power of attorney for asset management in place now. And I'll send them a free form that the state of California publishes. So what exactly do they do? They enable you to, number one, express your wishes. So in a healthcare document setting, that allows you to say things like, I'd like to donate my organs, or I definitely do not want to donate my organs, or Cremation is important to me versus I would like to be buried. And you can also give more direct instructions regarding I'd like to receive life-sustaining care for as long as possible, or please give it to me for a reasonable period of time, and then I would like for it to be withdrawn. So, so number one is instructions. You're, allowed to, you're able to give instructions. Number two, you designate an agent, a proxy. This is somebody you trust who can advocate for you when you're not able to. So, you know, quick follow-up is, hey, I'm healthy. I feel great. Wh why do I need these documents? That's me, right? I advocate for myself. I give instructions. Yes, and that's ideal. 
But these documents are triggered and they go into effect and are most useful when we lose capacity. Now, a loss of capacity as a result of something like uh, a coma, right? So you just literally can't communicate or a loss of mental capacity. Sometimes our bodies are outliving our minds. So we have Alzheimer's or dementia. These documents are so key because they empower the people around you to help you to maintain really important functions about your life. But the key is at the time that you need them most, you don't have the legal ability to execute the documents because you lack capacity. So it's one of those things that just requires a, a, just a little bit of proactive work, uh, and it, it's, it's a great safeguard. All right. I want to move on to another document called a trust. And a trust can do a number of things. Number one, it, it avoids probate. Number two, for a married couple, you know, you're Larry lots of bucks and you have a large estate, you can double the estate tax exemption. Uh, it avoids things like conservatorship. So let's talk about a trust, its advantages, and then the necessary things that have to be done when you have a trust. A lot of times, Adam, I've seen people reluctant to get a trust, especially if they're much, much older, because they think if they set up a trust, they're going to lose control over their assets. So let's get into trust and talk about their advantages and disadvantages, if any. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, happy to. And so we can't talk about trust without talking about probate. So probate is a four-letter word in our office because it involves a significant amount of attorney's fees. It involves court processes and real serious delays. So trust is one of the ways that people are able to sidestep probate. And at its most basic level, a trust enables you to list your wishes, identify who it is that you want to supervise carrying them out, and then transfer ownership to the trust that you created, that you control, that you can usually amend or revoke. Um, but that act of transferring ownership, just updating title, which you've already mentioned, enables you to sidestep the entire probate process for every asset that you update and put in that trust. And that is such a big deal. So in California, for example, if you had a million dollars that was subject to probate, the attorney is going to get paid over $20,000 in fees. And for a standard approach with a trust, et cetera, uh, there's no way you're paying $20,000 to an attorney to set up a trust. And so the, the cost savings is just really, really big. Now, you know, a question as far as losing control. So your clients, are they, are they concerned that a trust is going to be something that separates them from their documents, that they put it in? And that what, what, what do you see when, when we're talking about that? Sometimes they'll come up, well, gosh, if I put a, my assets in a trust instead of my name, I lose control over it, which is not true. You actually have more control. It's just a, a myth or misperception that's out there sometimes will be brought up. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. So these trusts, by and large, are it's it's an extension of you. So it you still file taxes the way you did previously under your regular social security number. The person who establishes it, so an individual, they are the trustee of their trust. They are the trustor, which means they're the person who established it. And as trustor, they retain power to amend the trust. 
They can revoke the trust if they feel like it. They nominate successor trustees who are going to step in for them after they're not able to act, but that's only after they want to step down or if they lose capacity. And then even if they step down, let's say they resigned, but say, oh boy, you know, I have capacity, but I've worked hard, time for my kids to deal with this, right? Or uh, I, pay, I paid a bill twice and I'm just going to be cautious and I, I just want to make sure that, that somebody is helping me. So they can call in somebody as a successor trustee or a co-trustee to assist them. And, you know, I would be concerned about losing control in that context, but that's where one of the key features of being the person who established it really comes in because you retain the ability to revoke and replace that trustee. So you can say, you're not making me comfortable. I don't appreciate the way that you're communicating with me or you made a bad decision. Thank you for what you've done, but you're done. And then you can revoke that power and then step back in yourself as the trustee or appoint an alternate to uh, act who you think will do a better job. So I, I, I appreciate you raising that issue because it's just um, not the case. And so I would hate for people to miss out on the benefits um, based on you know, a valid concern, but one that can just very easily be addressed. And the other thing too, it's a way to protect a surviving spouse. So let's say we know that Uh, women outlive men. So let's say you're the husband, you pass away, but you want to protect your wife. Maybe she did not handle the finances and you want to be able to protect that spouse. Uh, You and I worked on a case where the surviving spouse, in this case, it was a, a woman, and where we had children involved in trying to remove her as trustee and move the assets over to this new bank startup to manage the money, uh, which would have deprived her of the ability to oversee her assets. So let's talk about protecting a surviving spouse. That's such a great point. And and that's a good real life example. You know, all different relationships approach different things, different ways. And so it's very normal for us to kind of divide and conquer with our spouse, right? Say, you deal with this, I'm going to deal with that. And then as we're married for decades, et cetera, you know, we really kind of get entrenched in those roles. And it can be really disruptive for a surviving spouse who is grieving, uh, who's dealing with a major life change just on a day-to-day basis to suddenly have to assume all of those responsibilities. And so sometimes the concern is overly opinionated children who uh, may be well-meaning, but um, just are, are not paying enough attention and may just be wrong. It could be, you know, the sinister uh, bimbo girlfriend or beautiful pool boy or whatever it is. Um, but establishing a trust in advance and then identifying somebody who can help supervise it as far as a, serve, uh, a successor trustee um, is a great way to, again, provide guardrails bring in people who are objective, who can keep an eye on things to assist. And that could be a trusted uh, friend. It could be somebody in the family who you know is not going to get pushy and is going to be focused on the wishes of the surviving spouse. It could be a professional fiduciary. Um, It's just a way of kind of expanding the community that's going to assist the surviving spouse in a way that you cared for your spouse while you were living. Um, 
and then you know if if we're if we're more concerned and you know i don't i use the silly example about you know the sinister second spouse or girlfriend whatever it is but sometimes we just want to give them extra breathing room right so we're not saying that you you know want to like maybe it's great for your spouse to move on find a new relationship but by establishing a trust maybe it's an irrevocable trust after death you give them this like really nice cover and they're able to say I love you. I enjoy spending time with you. But you know what? There's a trust in place. And it's legally speaking, I need to leave it here and I can't mess with it. And I've seen in my practice that that gives people enough room to maintain their lifestyle, to you know, continue to move forward while still having the protection and safeguards associated with that relationship that they spent so much time building. And also the flexibility in the case you and I worked on where the son-in-laws were trying to get at the principal, we were able to bring in an independent trustee, which kept them out of the picture. But also later on when she developed Alzheimer's and was incapacitated, that trustee stepped in. So there was no disruption of services or anything. And that trustee uh, assured that she was taken care of. I want to move on to something else, though. If you set up a trust, because I just recently came across a case, dear, dear friend, quite wealthy, second marriage, set up a trust. The account with us was set up in the name of the trust, but there were other assets because this person served on the board of many companies. They had uh, She had stock in these companies that she was a board trustee but they weren't in the trust. And unfortunately, uh, she was too ill. And uh, we assumed, and when we were talking and having the conversation that everything was in the trust, it was one of the things I discussed with her, but apparently that did not turn out to be the case. And her surviving husband has gone through probate for two years. So let's talk about if you have a trust, the importance that the things that you own, investments, property, things like that are held in the name of the trust. This is key, Jim. I'm so glad that you raised this. So, you know, an early step or one of the preliminary steps, of course, is establishing that trust. But a necessary step afterwards is to fund the trust. Now, attorneys, um, professionals, you know, but like you use use a shorthand phrase and we and we say funding, right? So you gotta fund the trust. But what exactly does that mean and, and how does that relate to the example that, that you just shared? So a, a trust is a document and it lays out what happens and it has all of your wishes in it and who's gonna help, where it goes, and that's great. Um, but it functions a lot like a box. And so until you put an asset inside of the trust box it's not going to be subject to the terms of the trust without a whole lot of extra steps, probate, like you mentioned, the two-year process. So funding the trust is the process by which we take those assets and put them into the trust box so that on death or incapacity, the trustee can just pick it up and keep moving forward to maintain your, your regular life. And so it takes a little bit of work, but it's, it's really not that difficult compared to what it could be if you don't take that step. So it's a matter of updating title on a home 
so that where you previously owned it as X and Y as a married couple or X and Y as individuals, you now hold it as trustees of your trust. And that's it. It's such a small thing, but it makes all the difference. You need to take the same step with bank accounts, stock, you know, all of your different assets. You should be asking your financial advisor, your attorney, you share, you say, I have this, I have that. Does this need to be held in the trust? Do I name the trust as a beneficiary? Because that's how you finish strong. It's, it's essential. Let's talk about uh, another advantage. And uh, I'm talking here about uh, very large estates. The estate tax exemption right now is about $12 million nine. So let's say you were very successful. You had a business. You're worth a lot of money. Let's just take a, a $30 million estate. Let's talk about the estate tax advantages of having a trust for a married couple when there are large assets in the estate. Yeah. So we're in a really interesting time. Jim, you have so much experience and you've been taking care of your clients for, for such a long time. I'm sure you can remember a time when the exemption amount was $600,000 at the federal level. And it's just, it's, it's really increased since then. So we have, as you said, $12.9 million per person. So by preparing a trust, you can clarify the fact that um, we want to be able to take the full advantage of the exemption amount for each spouse. And a trust can help you max out the benefit, the exemption amount of the first spouse when they pass away, and then ensure that you get as much as possible from that first spouse's exemption so that on the second spouse's passing, he or she can apply their own exemption amount to the remaining person. And so your example with the couple that has a $30 million combined estate, if they don't have a trust in place or they have a trust that's just that let's just say transfers everything from the you know husband to the sp- the wife or the surviving spouse holds control of all the assets well you just gave up on almost 13 million dollars of exemption and that full 30 million dollars minus the wife's exemption is going to be subject to the estate tax so you know, where you could have covered almost the entire estate, um, you're instead going to be experiencing the estate tax on, you know, 13, 14, 15 million dollars uh, simply as a result of not taking some initial pretty simple planning steps. And there are a lot of advantages of that. I, I've got a case right now. Uh, the gentleman was a high-level executive at one of the technology companies. And of course, with stock options, uh, he's got his, his company stock has got a $10 million capital gain. So we've got it now in a trust. And basically, he's in his middle 80s. And so the idea is it's in California. It's a community property state. And the idea is we're just going to sit on this. It'll be put in a trust a B trust, in other words, the trust will split to take advantage of the exemption to get it out of state taxes because his health is failing him. But more importantly, the thing that we're going to be dealing with, Adam, is we're going to get rid of $10 million in capital gains. So, you know, we he wanted to diversify for his wife, but, you know, with $10 million of capital gains, 
you're talking about almost 24% federal tax and his tax bracket, 13-3 state of California. You're almost talking close to 40% would be taken by uh, the governor and uh, basically the federal government. So in this case, we're not only going to shelter that stock from further estate taxation, but we're also going to get rid of the capital gains. And so, you know what you just humbly illustrated there, Jim, and you're you're so great at this. This is something where you were able to have an open conversation. Your client shared all this information with you. And, you know, this is an encouragement to, to your listeners. If you trust somebody to work with them, share all the information so that they can think about this, you know, in a, in a more global sense. And so, Jim, you were able to serve your client there by saying, hey, let's think about all of these things. Let's identify some opportunities here, right? And then you're going to have the chance to be part of the process where you say, you know, this highly appreciated asset regarding the stock for the company that he worked for, let's allocate it to this portion of his estate after he passes away. And let's treat it over here. Let's put these other assets in the other trust bucket because we don't have the same opportunities. You know, we don't, we don't have the same ability to experience these wonderful tax savings. And that, to, to be real honest, is not simply a function of the trust document. And the attorney didn't do that, right? That's a financial advisor who was able to look at it, who was familiar with the law, who understood the tax code and understood his client. And I'm an attorney. I think attorneys do great work. Some of them are, you know, not everybody loves attorneys and that's fair, right? But that, that's not attorney work, right? That's somebody who understood what was happening and was really smart and was able to take an approach that uh, amazing benefit to your client. So bravo. I think that's great. So in summing up, let's take three situations. Let's take a new couple. Uh, let's say they finally bought a home. They've got now have two children. They don't have really an estate other than maybe the equity in their home, but they have you know life insurance policies on mom, life insurance policies on dad. So that's case number one. Case number two is a couple heading into retirement, maybe with their pension plan, uh, the equity in their house, they're worth three or four million. And then let's take Larry lots of bucks, the $30 million case. Each one of these couples that we've you've just identified can benefit from a trust. And if I'm getting a chance to talk with any of these couples, as I mentioned earlier, durable powers of attorney, healthcare and asset management to make sure that if they have an accident, you know, they can keep life moving. But w- when it comes to the, the trust aspect, a single document can address the needs of each of these couples, even though they have really different profiles in very similar ways by identifying who they want their assets to go to, identifying trusted persons to keep an eye on the estate after the first spouse dies or after one or both lose capacity or something like that. And then also to maximize the available tax benefits. And believe it or not, you identified the three major stages that would I, at which I get to meet clients. And believe it or not, um, the trust that we might prepare for the new couple, two children, some minimal equity in their home, life insurance, the trust that we prepare for that couple, we're going to build in just by default, 
um, a lot of potential extra benefits, options, et cetera, knowing that this couple is likely going to grow into the one that you described secondly, or hopefully into the third. And so when working with an attorney, it's worth saying, this is where we are now. This is where we anticipate we might be, and this is where we hope to be, so that you can establish a document that's flexible enough to grow with you and take full advantage of whatever is available. Because I know that when I get to work with this, the first couple that you described, I know it's entirely possible that they'll get busy with life, soccer games, clubs, whatever it is, and I may not get to see them again. And so we build it all in at the beginning, knowing that they're going to grow and um so, you know, that this, these different people in this scenario kind of highlights the flexibility of these sorts of documents. The other thing, too, and we'll just kind of conclude on this, it's important. One of the things we know about politicians, they change the tax laws. The exemption that you and I talked about reverts to a lower exemption after 2025. So in 2026, it'll go back. It's estimated somewhere around $6 million. So just bear in mind, the tax laws change. So that's why it's very important when you're uh, working with an advisor, because that advisor is probably going to know more about you than, as you pointed out, Adam, somebody comes in, you do their estate plan, you may not see them for another five, 10 years, where the advisor is aware that tax laws are changed. So that person is in a position to advise the clients, hey, tax laws are changing. We need to do something now. Absolutely. And you get to shepherd people throughout the course of their life. And I'm jealous of that to a certain degree because I, I meet people episodic. It's, it's sporadic, right? So they'll come to me, just like you said, I won't hear from them again for 10 years. But during that time, a lot of things have changed. And, you know, a tip to your listeners, attorneys don't have a duty, a legal duty in that circumstance to reach out to every one of their clients and say, paragraph three relates to this law. The this party or that party in Washington just changed everything, right? And we need to talk about maximizing it. Your, your attorney's not going to do that for you. Uh, it's not part of the relationship. It's not part of their legal duty. So an advisor is somebody, you know, who you get to touch base with two times a year, three times, whatever it is that you figure out. And, you know, they're the ones who are going to walk alongside of you and keep you in the loop when it comes to this stuff. Because as much as I'd like to be able to do that, I don't have that same sort of relationship or access with my clients. And so I know that I'll do the best when they're with me. Uh, we're going to deal with everything we know at the moment, but you're, you're exactly right. We, nothing's constant. And people are going to change it for this reason or that reason. And so it's, it's nice to know that there's other people looking out for my clients so that they can uh, clue them in when we need to revisit things. Well, listen, Adam, as we close of our listeners tuning into this broadcast, would like to find out more about the services you provide here in California, tell them how they could do so. Gladly. So I suppose the easiest way is, is our website, spectersherry.com. That's S-P-E-C-T-O-R-S-H-E-R-R-Y.com. We work with clients throughout California regarding establishing estate plans. And we also do post-death administration. So when people do end up in a probate situation, we can help people with that, as well as administering trusts after death. All right. Well, listen, Adam, thanks so much for joining us on the program. I want to have you back uh, again. And next time, let's talk about some advanced planning techniques. If you own a business, you have a lot of money, 
you have particular needs like a special needs trust for a child and get into some of the more advanced topics in estate planning. But thanks so much for joining us on the program today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Please be advised that you invest at your own risk.